The Last Word with Matt Cooper. John Gibbons has joined me in the studio and was just telling me before we came back from the ad break that we have a history in this country of political parties for farmers. Is that Fine Gael? Uh, yeah, good, good evening, Matt. Yeah, in fact, if you go back to 1939, uh, we had a party called Clown Natalov and um, it reached its peak in 1943 in the general election. They achieved uh, nine seats and in the following year, there was another election in 44, it achieved 10 seats. So at its peak, Matt, uh, the, the Clown Natalov uh, achieved 130,000 first preferences. Now, that was in 1943. By 1961, it had run its course. It was down to 17,000 first preferences. So an interesting point point to make is that the population of people describing themselves as full-time farmers back in the 30s and 40s was a multiple, many multiples of what we have today. So the question really is um, if a party like that achieved a peak like that in those numbers at a time when there were literally hundreds of thousands of small farmers uh, it's very difficult to see where there's a political base given there's maybe 60,000 full-time farmers in Ireland today, maybe 150,000 if you add in the part-time farmers And, and I think it's quite interesting as well as to whether, I, and I heard Pat's remarks about, uh, I think it was 72%, he said, uh, of farmers who, who suggested they might vote for this party, give it a first preference. Now, that's kind of interesting because uh, political parties, you know, spend a lot of effort and time, Fianna Gael, Fianna Fáil, Sinn Féin these days, you know, courting the farmer uh, vote. So if the farmers are going to turn around and say, well, actually, we're not going to vote for any of you guys, I think it's a risky strategy because if they say, okay, we're lumping for the farmer's party, let's just say this actually happens. That basically lets the other parties off the hook and say, okay, grand, you've got your farmers' parties to represent you, so we will stop, basically, having our policies dictated to us by this particular group. So I think it's a a high-risk strategy. Okay. Do you think is Spain going to be a destination that people are going to start to avoiding for their summer holidays, maybe July and August? They might go at other times of the year, but not during the summer months. Yeah, I think that's pretty clear already, Matt. Um, like we're really looking at uh, probably a drastic shift in, well, obviously in climatic patterns, but if, since we're talking specifically about tourism here, there's no question about it, uh, that the lower part of Europe, I suppose below the Loire Valley in France, if you like, uh, everywhere down. So we're look, talking about the south of France, into Spain, Portugal, uh, across most of Italy, across uh, to uh, Greece and beyond. And uh, these areas are getting too hot to visit in the summer. And this is what the... Tour, tourism business itself is saying the likes of TUI has said people will be holidaying in Belgium and Germany. That's right. I mean, it's it's like, a, you know, animals migrate northwards during times of heating. So what we're seeing basically is this is what humans are doing as well. I suppose the great attraction, particularly for Ireland, of the sun holiday has been an opportunity to go somewhere nice. But of course, what an Irish person, typical Irish person means as nice is, you know, 25, maybe 30 degrees. After that, we start to melt. In fact, even the locals, Matt, are melting here. And this is the it's gone to 44 degrees this week and it's not just parts of Spain the Basque country which normally would not get anything like that has been up to 40 degrees Yeah and again we've spoken about this as you know many times this summer this is really a, a fairly hellish summer but unfortunately uh, this is likely to be one of the coolest summers for the rest of the 21st century and we also know that we have an El Nino kicking in uh, we haven't really felt its effects yet but we can certainly expect the El Nino to start to contribute to temperatures next year now my fear Matt is that next year we're going to have a worse summer if that imaginable than we've had this year. But what we notice here is we're getting a traffic jam really of extreme weather events. Like really dramatic extreme weather events. John, this listener here says, can you ask John what the average temperature was in Ireland in July? And I know why that question is coming in because we got nothing like what's happened in continental Europe. But 
does it matter given that you know, we have a global crisis? Actually, I'd be delighted to answer that question and I'm really glad he brought it up. It's a, it's a, it's a great segue. Right, July 2023 was the wettest July ever recorded in Ireland. Now, March 2023 was the wettest March ever recorded in Ireland. October 2022 was the wettest October ever recorded in Ireland. So in the last nine months, we've had three of the wettest months in Irish history. Now, if you're a listener can't figure out that something drastic is going on with our weather. And I would also link this back to the earlier uh, comment about, about the farming community. The idea of running away from climate change. Climate change is coming after us. It's right here. We're seeing this, for example, Met Aaron point out earlier today that rainfall in Ireland is already up 7% we're getting much more rainfall and we're seeing that expressed itself. Also, uh, June of 2023, Matt, was the hottest June ever recorded in Ireland. Now, you have to ask yourself, why do we keep breaking records? The hottest summers, the hottest days uh, globally, the hottest uh, days in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, we've got marine heat waves. Now we've got record wet wet conditions in Ireland. These are all part, essentially, of an overheated atmosphere expressing itself both in precipitation and in extreme heat. Okay, let's go to some of what you call myths about climate change that have been put around by deniers, as you see it, and it, particularly in relation to the transition to renewables, some of which I think was prompted by a conversation I had on the programme last night about electric cars. Here's the first one. Don't renewables mean mining for more resources with big environmental impacts as a result? Yeah, that's a really, really interesting one. Uh, what we find is that in a typical year, um, we, we mine about four billion tons of coal to obviously for, for energy and, and other uses. We also mine several billion tons of oil. Now, it has been calculated by the International Energy Agency that the total amount of minerals required for a global transition to renewable energy mat over a 30-year period would amount to about 3.5 billion tonnes. So that works out at about 100 million tonnes a year. Now, you stack up 100 million tonnes of minerals mined for renewables versus, what is it, 7, 8 billion tonnes every year. And of course, this is before we even begin to look at the deleterious effects of actually burning all that coal and burning all that oil. Simply in terms of resource use, it is a percent consistent myth and we keep hearing it oh what, what, what about the mining for lithium what about the mining for cobalt of course it's significant of course we want uh, far better human rights standards but we shouldn't we should be highly aware of the fact that the people who tend to be pushing this tend to be people, when you ask them about coal mining, they have nothing to say. When you ask them about oil and gas extraction and the huge environmental damage and the human rights issues, they look at you blankly. Aren't EVs a fire hazard? Somebody actually last night emailed in a YouTube video of an electric vehicle going on fire. Yeah, this is another persistent myth. And we have some hard data on this. And we got it from Sweden. Uh, their, their agency, their, their motor agency, published data for, for 2022. And here it goes. In 2022 in Sweden, there were 106 fires in various electrified modes of transport. Uh, 38 in electric scooters, 20 in electric bikes, and 23 fires in electric vehicles. That gave them a total of 0.004% of Sweden's fleet of 611 11,000 EVs went on fire last year, right? Now, they did the same calculation for internal combustion cars. And what they found in that was the ratio, they had 3,400 fires uh, from their fleet of 4.4 million uh, vehicles, giving, that means that on average, you're 20 times more likely to have a fire in a car full of petrol or full of diesel than you are in a car, than an EV. And it's amazing, Matt, how often we see it in certain outlets like the Daily uh, 
Express and the Mail about the basically scare stories about electric vehicles. They're 20 times less likely to catch fire. Don't wind turbines pose a hazard to birds? Well, glad you asked. Um, I've been looking here and I'm just going to take the US because we can extrapolate globally from that. In the US, the US Fish and Wildlife Service, they did data for this for last year and they calculated that collisions with land-based wind turbines uh, involved about 234,000 bird fatalities in the year, right? Now, that sounds pretty bad until you compare it with the 2,400 million birds killed in the US last year by cats. Or the 590... And we know you don't like cats. I wouldn't say I'm not a cat person. I'm more a dog person, but sure. Also, Matt, last year in the US, about 600 billion... um, Sorry, million, I should say. uh, Birds were killed in collisions with glass buildings. Uh, About 215 million were killed in collisions with vehicles. 72 million were poisoned. Uh, 25 million died in collisions with electrical lines. And 5.5 million in electrocutions. So again... If you were taking out the wind turbines, and this did become an issue, by the way, when Donald Trump back in, I think, 2017 or 2018 uh, started talking about wind turbines, apart from giving you uh, cancer, apparently, uh, they were also slaughtering the birds. So it's probably a small fraction of 0.1% or so. Okay, I want to go back to the EVs. What about the argument that they don't actually save on overall emissions when you do a full life cycle analysis? When you look into the carbon uh, that is expended in building the things in the first place and then getting rid of them when the battery runs out? Yeah, they, these are these are excellent questions. Now, the the Union of Concerned Scientists they did a, they did a, again a full life cycle analysis on this, and what they discovered, and again these are U.S. data, but they they would hold fairly well for Ireland. Uh, what they found is that a battery electric vehicle over the course of its lifetime will emit, this includes its manufacture and all the energy used to run it, over a lifetime will emit about 18.9 tonnes of CO2. Okay? Now, the equivalent gasoline, or petrol car as they call it. Internal combustion engine. Internal combustion engine car. The equivalent car over its lifetime, 55 tonnes. Right? So, while there's a slight increase in 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 the carbon impact of manufacturing, there's a vast difference between uh, the amount... And that's saving. Yeah, and what the reason, of course, the difference is that your typical car burns X number of tonnes uh, of carbon every year through the, through the combustion of fuel. Hang on, are you taking into account the impact of the electricity generated from fossil fuels, which goes into the charging point that then goes into the car. That's correct. The data that I'm quoting uh, work from a fairly fossil fuel heavy um, Network. In fact, in Ireland, the figures would be better than this because we've got about 40% at the moment of our energy is actually completely clean, domestically produced energy on average, about 40%. In the US, it's below that. So we would expect our figures to be better. So yes, it takes into account. The key thing to, to, to bear in mind is the intrinsic efficiency of EVs. Right? But given that we can't move at present to fully clean electricity and fuel. Can't we just keep burning fossil fuels and do carbon capture instead as sort of a trade-off? Yeah, this, again, the, the biggest uh, proponents of this trade-off have, have, of course, been the fossil fuel industry. They've invested a few million here and a few million there, and they've managed to capture, Matt, over the last 20 years, a few thousand tonnes, maybe 50,000 tonnes of, of CO2. What they've discovered is when you add carbon capture and storage technology to a typical, say, power plant, 
What it does is it renders that power plant uh, bankrupt because the cost of carbon storage uh, and sequestration and compression and then you've also, when you've done all this with the carbon, you then have to uh, transfer it into underground storage and store it there for the next thousand years. So it's enormously complex, hugely costly. Now, can you imagine the enthusiasm of the fossil fuel industry for all of this? Bear in mind, there is no, there's no customer to buy your CO2. Uh, it's simply a waste product, a dangerous waste product that you've got to store forever. Now, of course, the other issue, Matt, is while you may be able to look at carbon capture, uh, for example, on a, on, a, on a power plant, how do you carbon capture out the back pipe of your, of your car? It's impossible. Okay. What about the thing that the more renewables that there are in the grid, the more expensive our energy bills get? Yeah, this again is, is one of these uh, persistent myths. And, we, um, and for example, as I mentioned, here in Ireland, we've got roughly 40%. Now, undoubtedly, putting renewables onto the grid, they generally come on with, with a certain amount of, of uh, support in the form of the public service obligation. That, that helps them to get onto the grid. However, once you've got renewables onto your grid, they do a couple of things. Number one, they lower the, the, the unit price of electricity. And the reason, of course, they do that is that once uh, your renewables are spinning, once your wind turbines are, 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 are spinning, once your solar panels are running, effectively, once you have the capital cost put in, the energy is effectively free. On the other hand, when you're running a coal-fired station, or a gas-powered station, you're constantly pouring more and more energy, you're constantly importing, and Matt, the key difference here is that with the fossil fuel energy, we're completely at the mercy of international markets, and as we've seen since the Ukraine war in February 2022, when energy prices spiked on the international markets, we took a hammering in Ireland. Okay, just one I can finish with. There's a couple of people have texted in the same thing. You can put out a fire in a diesel or petrol car, but once an electric vehicle goes on fire, you can't put it out. And Sweden wouldn't allow electric vehicles onto ferries. <laughs> uh, well, first of all, the good news is you will be 20 times less likely to be in that situation. Now, I can't uh, comment on the, the story about Sweden not allowing um, electric EVs cars on ferries. on ferries. And I'll tell you, Matt, given that there's, what is it, 600,000 EVs in Sweden, I very much doubt it. But the next time we, I'm in, we look I, into it. I promise you, I will fact check that for your listener. I look forward to seeing you again next Thursday, an essential part of the last word every week. John Gibbons in our weekly environment spot. Uh, thank you very much for being with us. The last word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today I-